as we uh, do our this uh, next part of our look at the book of First Thessalonians, I want to share briefly a testimony of well, or I don't know if you'd say two testimonies of two prayer times I had this week. I had a good week. You know, there are highs and lows in your spiritual walk where sometimes, you know, prayer just seems kind of flat and it doesn't seem like you break through. And then there's other times where you, you seem to break through and you have good ones. Well, this was one of those weeks for me. So I'm going to tell the testimony about it now and not the weeks where it's really flat, okay? This, uh, just yesterday, I was praying and this thought as I prayed, I was asking God about this and mulling this over in my head. In what way are we created in the image of God? You know, in the first chapter of the Bible, God says, Let, after all of these different things are created, the cosmos and then all these different um, creatures, then it says that God said, let us make man in our own image. And he did so, male and female. He made them. He made man, the creature, male and female, at the beginning. In his likeness, in his image. In what way? Does anybody else ever wonder about that? Like, what what does that mean, in what way? And I think there are different ways. As I uh, was praying, I was thinking, we, we have a desire as humans to create and to build. Like we do that, you know, some like um, to build people building a business, people building some community, people building a family, people creating works of art, or the, that's a, that's one way. But the, yesterday, the thought occurred to me as I was mulling this over and bringing this before God that one of the key ways that we bear God's likeness is our capacity to love and be loved. It's a, that's a God thing. That's a divine imprint on us. We're wired for it, to love and be loved. And I was, I was thinking as I did it, and this is the easy one, I was thinking of Rose and how, you know, we, we have this relationship now that's um, like about 30 years, 28 years of marriage, but a couple years of me chasing her before that. And, um, you know, I have this need to love and be loved, and you're the target. <laughs> but this thing, we, we have that capacity, right? People have it. Everybody's got that. It's in there, even if they've deadened it or dulled it by, you know, from different things, or it's been dulled by, you know, things like abuse and those kinds of things. It's there, that need to love and be loved. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's wired into us. It's part, one of the ways we're created in the image of God. Within the Godhead, for all eternity, there's been this love being shared, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving, perfect love within the Godhead. Now, as I say, I thought about with Rose, I thought about my kids, how I delight to see them. I love them, and I want to be loved by them. Last Sunday, I was puttering around in my backyard, and the Plato family showed up. They, they needed to pick something up, and, um, uh, a tool that I had in my garage, but they showed up, the whole family, they came into the backyard, and I loved seeing them. And I could tell that seeing me was the highlight of their week. I, 
except Elizabeth. She just wanted to see our cat. But there's this thing where I love them and I loved being with them and they didn't stay long enough. They, you know, they uh, took off soon. But that was part of it where I just loved being with them. And a couple days prior to that, another prayer time, this thought came and this was uh, related but different. I was impressed by the reality that Jesus was, in a way, while he was in his earthly ministry, while he was among human beings in the flesh, that he was, in a very real sense, kind of irresistible. People who were truth-seeking, people who were humble, the, the broken, the lost... Humble truth seekers were drawn to him almost irresistibly. Thinking, I was, as I was praying, I was thinking about how, you know, Jesus feeds thousands and then he sends the disciples on a boat across the lake and he goes up to the mountain to pray. He says, you guys go, I'm going to send the crowd away. And uh, it was a huge crowd, thousands. He sends them away and he goes up to pray. Well, the next day, it says in John 6 that people came back there and they realized Jesus isn't there, but there was only one boat and he didn't leave in it. So where is he? When they determine that he's gone, they all start getting in boats and going around the lake to get to where he is. Like they'll... They'll go there. They go out in the wilderness to see him. Uh, the, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. They're up on the mountain. Another one in Luke, the Sermon on the Plateau or on the Plain. They'd go to the wilderness. They'd go to uh, the synagogue. They'd go to the temple to hear him teach, to be touched by him, healed by him, delivered by him. He was irresistible to people who had a heart for the truth. They, they, it's like... Some of them, I'm quite certain, just like I would say is true of my testimony, I didn't quite even totally know what it was about him, but I had to have him. I kept coming back to Jesus, even though that seemed to me at the time, it's almost kind of nerdy. Oh, Jesus, oh, that seems kind of dorky. I'm cool, and, you know, that Jesus is too nerdy. But I, he was irresistible. And what was it? I think it wasn't just that he healed, he delivered, he taught. They, they would go to the Pharisee's house, the fisherman's house, the tax collector's house to hear him, be near him. But I think it was because they were loved by him. The woman in, Math, in uh, John chapter 8 that they throw down and say, we caught her in adultery. The law says we're supposed to stone her. What are we going to do? And thinking, ah, we've got him now. If he does that, he seems harsh. If he doesn't, he compromises with sin. And what does Jesus do? Okay, the one without sin cast the first stone. And at the end of it, he says to the woman, no compromise. He loves her exceedingly. He says, you know, go and sin no more. He's not condoning sin. But he's not condemning either. He's making a way. Uh, Because of what? Because of love. He was irresistible because of that. And again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity have been sharing, have been drinking in, have been sharing this love, this perfect love within the Godhead. Nothing disturbing it. 
no competition, no fear, no doubt, no selfishness at all. And God invites us into that. God, that's part of who we are, that need to love and be loved with the very love of God, the irresistible love of God. I, I think here in this um, book of 1 Thessalonians, that love is evident all through Paul's letter, in all of his letters, but in this one, all through his letter to the Thessalonian church and to us. It's clear all the way through there that this guy has the love of God speaking to these new converts. And I want to say, let it speak to you. Let it speak to you. The word is as relevant today as it was when Paul put his pen on the paper or when he dictated it and that letter got delivered to these these people. It's just as relevant for us as it was to the Thessalonians. Amen? Okay, let's read. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. We're just going to read those first four verses. But we, brethren, brothers and sisters, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Some translations say you're our pride and joy. You know, what's, what people say about a, their child. Paul is saying that about these new young converts. He's saying you're our pride and joy. You're our glory and joy. Okay, up to this point through this letter, Paul keeps reminding the Thessalonian disciples and us of how effectively God's, the gospel of God, the message of salvation, the message of Christ has spoken to their hearts and transformed their lives. He keeps reminding them, you know the word came with conviction and it changed you just as it changed us. And then when you spoke it abroad, it changed those people. The lives of all who embrace it and respond in humility and faith, it changes. And here he continues to speak adoringly to these people. He, you're our pride and joy. You're our, you're our uh, what, what does he say? Our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation. In the present, you in the presence of God at His coming are our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation. Of course, that doesn't mean it's that Christ isn't our central joy, our hope, our exaltation. But He's saying to have you there, our disciples, those that we brought the gospel to and you responded when we stand in the presence of God and we look and we see you. Oh man, thank you God. I had the privilege about 20 years ago of leading my dear mom to Christ. When I get to heaven and I get to see my mom and she's there and God got God used me to be a part of that. It's I mean she's my joy anyway. I love my mom, but it's going to be like wow, you're here. When we get to share Christ with people and they respond, and when we stand in the presence of God, that's going to be such a celebration that they're here and God used us to speak that word out. Amen? It's a good thing. And he speaks adoringly of these people and expresses, like he says this, we were eager with great desire. Some translations say with intense longing. He's speaking that way about the people 
in this church, he says, we had great desire. We were eager with great desire to see you and be with you, having been separated from you for just a short while. We were, you know, we have this intense longing. We want to be back with you. He says, to see your face. Wow. Does anybody talk to you that way? Do you talk to anybody that way? He's been saying things like this all through the letter. And he continues, We wanted to come to you more than once, but Satan hindered us. Wow, something really good must have been happening if the devil himself got involved. To well, The word hindered means put up a roadblock. He put up a roadblock. He, the old New, New American Standard says he thwarted them, thwarted their way. They wanted to see them so badly that Satan got involved. They loved them so much that Satan himself got involved. Seeing you in Jesus' presence when he returns is our hope and joy and crown of glory. You are our glory and joy. God stir this kind of intense longing in us for one another and the converts that God gives us. Amen? I want that stirred in me. Okay, he continues. First uh, Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. He says this, the state of our faith can't be left to chance. Paul's not just saying, hey, we planted the gospel there. There's a, a church. They're going to be all right. They, you know, they have the Bible there. They would have had just the Old Testament, of course. They have the word. They have some good people. They're going to be all right. No, he's not leaving it to chance. He sends Timothy, the, his young apprentice who was skillful, who was um, passionate, zealous for the Lord. He sends Timothy to, it says, in um, verse 2, to, in, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. To strengthen and encourage you in your faith. He knew they were facing opposition. They were facing affliction for following Christ. In verse 3, he says, you know you were destined for this. We told you it was going to happen. Wow, that's a way to present Christ. Not just say, hey, you're, you know, you come to Christ. He's going to come in and it's going to be so wonderful in your heart. It's like, let's include that part. Hey, you're going to face some opposition. From the devil for sure, but even from people. Even from people. Because not everybody's going to just, you know, do a happy dance when they hear that you're following Christ. You know we're destined for affliction in connection to following Jesus. We kept telling you in advance that this would happen. 
okay? But Timothy was sent to strengthen and encourage them in their faith in case the affliction had unsettled them or shaken their faith, even though he's already, even though Paul has already said a couple times that the authenticity of their faith has been confirmed by how they've responded to suffering, how they've responded to opposition. Verse 5 says, Timothy was also sent to find out about their faith. He came to assess the need. In the old Methodist tradition, John and Charles Wesley and the people that were part of that movement hundreds of years ago, they had a saying, a phrase, a question they would ask one another. When they'd see one another, they would say this, how is it with your soul? It's like, how is it with your soul? Like, talk about getting to the real deal right away. Boy, it looks like it's going to rain today. Yeah, whatever. How is it with your soul? <laughs> you know, how is it with your soul, with your inner world? Are, are you unsettled? Are you shaken? Are you strong in faith? Are you pursuing God? How is it with your soul? And that's what Timothy is sent to, to find out about their faith, to assess where the need is. How are you doing? And he says to assess the need in case the tempter. Who is the tempter? Satan. Satan. It's the same guy. He mentions him twice in this short passage. In case the tempter, the deceiver, the accuser, the condemner, might have successfully tempted you and derailed you, nullifying our hard work. He said, we, didn't, we wanted to check so we'd know whether our work was in vain whether it had come to nothing. One commentator says about this, he probably said that because he had heard some reports that some of it was happening, which, you know, there's always some of that. People are being pushed by the enemy. Some would, would cave. Some would have taken the bait. The tempter will tempt for sure, Right? Tell somebody near you, the tempter's going to tempt you. Comfort one another with those words. (laughs) He's going to do it. Just like Paul said about affliction, we told you in advance, don't live in some dream world that somehow you're going to coast through untempted. No, there will be temptation. He's going to do it for sure. However, there is also... And I'm not, I'm not sure how this works. Jesus said on the night he was uh, betrayed, while he was in the garden, what did he say when he was going to pray and the disciples were falling asleep? What did he keep coming back and say to them? Pray that you don't enter into temptation. You, you, he, and he said, he, we all know, how, what, what's the line from the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Not into temptation but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Well, of course, God isn't actually going to lead us. It means lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's like there is some part of temptation that it would appear from what Jesus is saying that we can pray and we can sidestep that. It's like, God, I know I'm going to face some temptation in this life, 
But as much as possible, please allow me to sort of miss it, to, to sidestep it, to go around it. I know I will be tempted. I know you will be. Expect it. Brace yourself. Make the decision now. I'm not going to give in to it. But there's some part of it that Jesus says, pray that you enter not into temptation. Okay, I'm going to do that. If Jesus said it, I'm going to do that. I don't want it. I don't want any extra. I know there's going to be some. I don't want any extra temptation. I want to be delivered from it. Will the, the tempter is going to tempt for sure. The question is, will he be effective when he brings it to our doorstep? Will he be effective? We can't coast. We can't just coast and expect, hey, my faith is okay. I don't even need to sort of assess it or evaluate where it's at. I don't need to keep building it up. No, we can't coast. We can't let the tempter derail us. And we can't let the tempter derail our brothers and sisters. That Paul would be doing this. We sent Timothy to assess, to find out about your faith, lest the tempter had gotten to you and shaken your faith, unsettled you, disturbed you, got you off track. Let's, we can't allow him to just get our brothers and sisters either. Amen? The church is vital for the strengthening and encouraging of your faith. And as part of the church, you are vital for the strengthening and encouraging of somebody else's faith. We can help people not tank. Amen? When I first uh, got involved in, it was called Maranatha Ministries, a campus ministry, and I went to their leadership school, I went into this house, and it was with a bunch of guys, and their, their desire for Jesus was so strong. I think there were, in that house, eight or nine guys, and uh, there was such a, a great desire to please God that I remember just, feeling like it it uh lifted me up that it's like man i don't want to disappoint jesus and i don't want to disappoint these guys either i don't want to be the weak link in this house like you know they're having a discussion around dinner you know a dark cloud seems to come into this house it happened about the time that guy from canada got here (laughs) no way I, you know, I want to be part of the solution there. I don't want to be the weak link in it. And so there's something about us keeping the faith level up that helps others keep up there too, keeping aware that, hey, we don't want to let sin come in, not through us, not in this church, not in, not in my home, not any. We, we want to do that. The church is vital for the strengthening and encouraging of one another's faith. We need one another. What Paul and Timothy did for the Thessalonians, we have to do for each other. They sent there to do it, to keep them strong. Amen? We stand better together. We do. We stand better together. Standing alone, we're the one that gets picked off. I had a time where I I needed an answer from God, and uh, I felt like I was running out of time, and I was uh, maybe about 26, 27. had only been saved a few years and I, I needed someone to kind of just talk to me and help, uh, you know, just listen and 
give me some input. In fact, you know, I kind of hoped somebody would just speak, thus says the Lord, here's what you need to do, and they tell me so I don't have to think or, or exercise my faith. But that doesn't often happen quite like that. But I phoned the, a guy who had been my roommate uh, previously, and he pastors a church in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico now, has for decades. But I couldn't reach anybody except his dear mom. His mom and dad had been in the, they had been, um, what do they call them, officers in the Salvation Army Church for um, many years. And I don't know how old his mom would have been then, uh, but probably well into her 70s. And I called looking for him and as God would have it, I got her. And she just brought such a calm. This lady who's just got years, it's like, you know, I'm whatever, 26, 27, energy, you know, hormones, everything just, you know, like, you know, you can't contain it. And here's this lady who's just kind of like, I'm not running around like a chicken with its head cut off. I'm just going to speak to you calmly. And she just said, just settle down. And it's like some people might say that, and it might be offensive, but not this elderly woman who just said it, and it was kind of like, ah, yeah, what am I worried about? Like, God's not that that's what we do for one another, amen? We've got a station. There's another place where that, you know, young sort of energetic person comes in handy. I always loved that Pastor Mel would say, when he was starting to get older, he would say, us older guys need you young ones. And they said, and you need us. And it's like, it's true. And we all, we need peers. We need a, people that are above us in experience and uh, you know, encounter and people that are newer. And so this, we need one another. We need the church. Somebody say it. We need the church, need the church. for the good of our faith. <laughs> Amen. Okay, let's read this last section. First uh, Thessalonians 3, 6 to 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, so they had sent Timothy, now he's returned. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, it was mutual, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord. Some say, this is a, was a breath of life to us that you stand firm. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Timothy, Paul's young apprentice, has returned with an encouraging report about their faith and love and their longing to see Paul in the same way that Paul's been saying, we're longing to see you. We hated being separated from you even for a short time. We could hardly stand it. We love you. We really care about you. And then he finds out they feel the same about him. It's mutual. He was comforted to know that despite their afflictions and their suffering, the opposition, the temptation, their faith was firm. He says it was like a breath of life to us to hear that you guys are standing firm in Christ despite all those things. Now, James chapter 1 verse 2 to 3 says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's James, Jesus' younger brother. Then, in, then Peter, the book right after James, 1 Peter, verses 1 to 6, Peter says, you've been distressed by various trials so that your faith may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. This is life in the real world. Our faith is going to be tested, but that depending on how we respond, that's going to prove that it's genuine. That's going to prove the authenticity of our faith. We're not going to fold if we respond in faith to Christ. Oh, we're facing opposition. I guess I should give up. No. We're facing opposition. I'm going to have to trust him more. We do that, and we come through it. He says, your faith gets better. And Peter says, That'll, it'll prove your faith genuine. It wasn't just faith in an easy life or something. It'll prove it genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Well, I want that. This is life in the real world. That our faith is going to be tested. It's going to have to be proved. This is the life of faith in the real world, which is not really favorable to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? I feel in this hour, we are going to have to decide that ahead. That I'm going to go on with Jesus despite some maybe rejection, maybe affliction, maybe, you know some degree of ridicule or just, I mean, the way things are being sown now, even mistrust. Oh, those Christians. I, you know, we had the Operation Christmas Child thing up here. When I went looking for the video, a thing came up that said, seven reasons uh, you shouldn't be involved with Operation Christmas Child. <laughs> I read this thing. Operation Christmas Child, because they give gifts um it said they're trying to sow this um evil brand of christianity which basically was bible believing faith in christ it's racist it it um what's the word it promotes uh, a white savior mentality it was like, it was one thing after another. Another, You know those boxes, they, they showed that picture with the colorful red and green box? There's a, a boy drawn on it. Oh yeah, it said it's also homophobic and transphobic because it shows 
a boy and it, they say you ha- you go online and you say this is, these are gifts for a boy or for a girl that doing that is like we're in <laughs> in some kind of you know universe here but it and it's because on the box there's a picture drawn of what looks like uh, someone from Latin America, and I think they did it mostly with the, you know, the clothing that he's wearing. Like they showed Ecuador and certain clothing, and it said that's racist on there. And then there's another picture that looks like somebody who's obviously black, and they, yeah, oh, these these images on here are racist because you know. I, so I'm not sure. So we're in this world that is going to have a kind of mm, maybe even mistrust. Not, not even just, oh, you don't need that. That's a crutch. Why do you, why do you need a crutch, Matthew? Like, like Jesus, hey, you don't need that stuff. It's like, no, and then even worse, you are actually a problem. So these things, they're out there. These, these kind of uh, views about us. But Peter, Paul, James, they're all saying, expect this. And we're going to have to make up our mind ahead of time. They're lying. I don't care what they say about Jesus. I'm going on. I'm staying firm. I'm standing firm in the faith in him. They are wrong. And there will be a time, again, every chapter ends talking about the coming of Jesus. When we see him come, then it'll be like, okay, I'm glad I stood firm in Christ. There will be a day it'll be proved. It'll be proven. It'll be We'll actually see. It won't just be, oh, by faith we believe that he is. We'll actually see him. But we ought to make up our mind now because the world is going to try to make us buckle in this hour more than anything. And many are. Many have. It it grieves me to say it. There are whole denominations that have adopted values and thoughts, things that are just, they don't, they're not in here. They don't belong connected to the name of Jesus. Okay. Life, real life in this world is going to require some backbone, some standing firm, these kinds of things, because this world is in open rebellion to the living God, and it's going to continue to push back against faith in Christ. And you can fully expect your faith to be greater after being tested. It's going to get better. Okay, those last few verses again, verses 9 through 13. What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy we rejoice with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what's lacking in your faith. He, they want to support. Paul wanted to support uh, their faith. We want to support one another in faith. Do you know anyone that speaks this way? We pray for you night and day most earnestly so we can just see your face. Do you know anyone that speaks that way? That wants to be with you that badly? Paul just keeps expressing these things. And here's the thing. It seems kind of surprising because nobody talks that way really in the world with that kind of passion about seeing somebody else, that that magnitude of love. But I think Paul is just simply ablaze with the love of God. 
I don't think that it's just that Paul was just passionate or Paul was just such a loving guy. No, I think the love of God, he had drawn close to God again and again and again, and the love of God is coming out of him. And there are people that have touched God and God's love has come through them where I don't think it is just them, just their gift. It's it's like with Jesus. Again, that irresistible quality. He was ablaze with the actual love of God so that people who encountered him kept coming back because he could deliver them. He could change them just by loving them, just by drawing them close. You know, John, the disciple, leaning on, the, on Jesus' chest, it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He knew it. He knew it. He, he drew it in. It was irresistible to him. That love, that incredible, irresistible love of God, drawing people close, opening them up, healing them, saving them. Paul is reflecting the Father's intense longing and love for humanity and for you because this letter is to us too. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution? No, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I, I was writing this down this week and I was thinking, am I making too much of this? But then look what Paul says next in verse 10. May God himself bring us, or sorry, verse uh, 11. May God himself bring us to you, verse 12, and cause you to increase and abound or overflow in love for one another. I don't think I'm making too much of it. I think that's exactly what Paul was doing. He keeps pouring out love on the Thessalonians. And then he says, may God cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all men, all people, just as we do for you. That was his whole point. He's saying this love that we love you with, may God cause, of which I love that, may God cause you. It isn't just unique to Paul. He's saying we want God to cause you or make you increase and overflow with the love of God. That's why Paul was so effective. Paul and his team. It wasn't that they were just such skilled communicators that everybody said, wow, the way they laid out the gospel was so skillful. No, it was because their lives were energized with the love of God, with the actual love of God. This is what made them so effective. God caused you to, in, you know these words, increase and abound. The Greek words that are used in that verse, increase and abound or increase and overflow. The, the words in Greek mean, may God cause you to abound and superabound. It's kind of like, I pray that he gives you you know, what's a word that's, you know, back 20 years ago, the word was mega. Mega and super mega. 
It's like he can't find the superlatives to, to go bigger. So he uses just, he, he adds a prefix on the word abound. Abound and superabound. May God just cause you to overflow and then overflow even more. And God doesn't intend, again, for that to just be Paul's ministry or Paul's and Timothy's and uh, Sylvanius's. He means it to be ours. He means for us to increase and abound and overflow with the love of God to touch the world and to touch one another, he starts. So, in verse 13, I love this, so that he may, look at how he finishes it, cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and all men, just as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Whoa, wait a minute, what? He's hardly mentioned sin. Where does holiness all of a sudden come in on this? Holiness means separate from uncleanness or defilement. And here he connects holiness to an increase of love. The holiest man to ever walk the planet, the only perfectly holy person, was Jesus. He was also the person with the love of God coming through him like nobody else. And we tend... I tend anyway to think of, oh, there's God's holiness and there's God's love. Like somehow, you know, he, he balances them. There's a tension. Wrong. According to this, his love actually is, his, is part of his holiness. Or maybe the other way around. I don't know. But the two of them are not mutually exclusive. Like, oh, in this instance, I'm going to have to express my holiness more than my love. No, not with God. Increase and overflow with love that your hearts may be established in holiness. With Jesus, holiness did not stand aloof. The religious elites of his day viewed uh, being holy as being separate from the defilers or the defiled a better way to say it or the corrupted yet here comes jesus and he comes right in among them as opposed to viewing the defilement of defiled people instead of viewing it as something that's going to corrupt him he viewed it the other way around his holiness is rather going to save and transform the defiled and that's exactly what happened all around him People who had maladies in their bodies got healed. People who were, you know, broken and rejected and social outcasts. His holiness came, his love came, and he transformed them rather than their uncleanness getting on him. His holiness, his love got on them and changed them. I want to be that. I want to be that. I want the love of God. I want the love of God doing that. I think we default to that thing of thinking love and holiness is separate. But here's Paul saying, may God cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and all men so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. In Christ, holiness came looking for us because holiness and love are together in him perfectly. He doesn't turn one on or one off. He's both all the time. I pray that you and I will increase and overflow with love for one another and for all so that we may establish, so that, sorry, he may establish us blameless in holiness before him, before Christ, 
at his coming.